That's the voice that uh, you might have remembered from last week when you played at the actual speed. So, uh, yeah, Brem is reminding us of some of the places that we as a family of churches work together with to make a difference. We can't individually by ourselves make a difference everywhere. And we can sometimes feel overwhelmed, like I can't do it all on my own. And that really is one of the great things about being part of a family of churches that partner together, that we support each other and are connected to organizations and people who are working all around the globe. But what you, what you might have heard was the description of a part of our idea of focus. When I say that we're around pretty much the whole world, there are intentional places that we send international workers to, and there's intentional places that we don't send international workers to. And that's part of the mission sense, that when we send international workers first, we go to open a new area, to go to a place where few or none have heard about Jesus. The, the goal then is to, to build up the local church so that they would stand on their own as fast as they can, so that we don't overstay our time. We release people as much as we can to be indigenous um, and, and rule their own countries in that way. Um, and so we are targeting places where it's hard to go, people where, places where it's difficult to stay. That's so, sort of what we've done as a focus. And so, yeah, I'd like to welcome you to be part of the Jaffrey Offering. The Jaffrey Offering is a special offering that we do and sort of in this focus time where we, we make special mention of it. You are always welcome to give to International Mission any time of the year, and our offering envelopes allow you to designate that. And online giving enables you to do that as well. So you can designate that way if you would like today. Offering envelopes are at the back right by the offering um, I never know what to call it. Box? Is it a box? It's a box. But, but if you didn't want to get up and walk that far, you can give online as well. So at our w website, intoone.ca, you can click in the bottom left corner. You'll see a little guy running in a green circle. That'll take you into the, uh, the giving option, and you can designate funds where you'd like them to go. So as always, what we try to say is that we are here to help you grow in your faith. That's our goal. That's part of the mission that we have as a church. We want you to grow in faith. That's the same thing we want for other people around the world to do. And so we work in such a way that we partner with other organizations locally, nationally, and internationally so that Christ might be known. That, that he would be known, but that they would know that God loves them and God sent his son Jesus to die for them. That's the mission that we are about all the time. And we would like you, as you know that, to grow in your trust and your faith with him. And so we believe that one of the best ways to do that is to marshal your resources, to manage them in such a way that you might live generously with your time, with your treasure, and with your talent. All of these things aid us in our ability to follow God better, to grow in our trust, to grow in our faith, and to live that out well. Well, when, when I say that, I don't think that there could be, um, well, a better story for today than for us to move to our, our, our speaker today. I want to introduce uh, my friend to you, uh, our, an international worker. Um, before, before she comes up, I wanted to just give a little introduction, and then I wanted to uh, read to you a psalm that she has said has made uh, a significant difference in her life, and it's been part of her mission, and it describes part of her story. So I thought ex uh, extremely appropriate to do that. So if you would like to turn there with me, you can go to Psalm chapter 27. And I'm, what I'm using right now is an online Bible called YouVersion. I find it really convenient to be able to take with me wherever I go. 
um, multiple translations, multiple languages. It's really, really easy um, you can have. So if you have a paper Bible, please feel free to turn on that as well, Psalm 27. But if you, uh, you have a phone, then you have the capacity to have version, which is free. But what a great resource. It, it'll read to you even if you would just like to, maybe you're, you're doing your hair in the morning, you'd like to listen to something, just select the passage and push play, and it'll read to you. And you can have truth going into your mind even as you set the day out. So Psalm 27 is where I'm going to go, uh, and I'm going to read from the, the New International Version. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my foes and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. And then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At this sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me. Answer me. My heart says if you seek his face... Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. But I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. I kept thinking of all the things I wanted to say to introduce, but I think I keep, uh, I make it sound like it's not a real person. So I just want to introduce a real person to you. Just Penny Hall, Reverend Doctor, Doctor, Doctor Penny Hall, regular person, going to be focusing on one language today, but we could probably go in a couple of different directions with that if you'd like, at least 20 six different languages. Just a regular person, just an honest-to-goodness regular person who, well, Penny, you come up and tell us what's been going on with God in your life. Aha, I'm on. So you can hear me, right? <laughs> yeah. I am a regular person. And I hope that you will hear that this morning. I want to tell you a story that is really God's story. But I happen to be in there too. So it's my story, but it's really his story. And what he has done 
and how great a God we have. He is majestic and he is marvelous. And as I share some of the things that God has allowed me to participate in in my life with him, I think you will hear echoes of that psalm that was just read. On Good Friday, when I was four years old, I heard the message that Jesus died for me. And I had heard that before because I had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home. And we read scripture regularly in our home. In fact, by the time I was four, I could read scripture for myself because my father used to sit me on his knee and as he read the scripture, he would point to the words. And so I learned to read very early, learning to read scripture. King James Version, no less. And, but when I was four years old and I heard this story on Good Friday, it suddenly struck me. If Jesus did all that for me, and he wants to live in my heart, then that's the least I can do, is give him my heart and give him my life. And uh, that became a very real experience in my life, that no longer was I just me, but I had Jesus living in me. And when I was seven years old, I was sitting in Sunday school one morning, and I was listening to a missionary doctor who was working in India, a lady doctor even, and she was telling about what she was doing. And as I was listening to her, I heard God say to me, Penny, that's what I want you to do. It was a really clear voice. You will, if you get to know me a little bit, you understand I'm just a little bit of a mystic. And I heard that voice. It was really clear to me. The person sitting beside me didn't hear him say that, but I sure did. And I went home that day, and at lunch, as I sat with my mom and dad, I said, God has called me to be a missionary. He talked to me in Sunday school. And my parents supported me 100%. In fact, their reply was, well, before you were born, we were praying that God would take one of our children and use one of our children as a missionary. So that's just an answer. That's my parents just treat, oh, that's just an answer to prayer. You've been called to be a missionary. And I thank God that although I was only seven years old, I never lost sight of that, that God had called me. But when I was 13, I guess you would call me a bit of a precocious child. I had this thing inside of me that said, I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. I want to know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to have my life all planned out here. You know, God doesn't work that way. <laughs> but I didn't know that at that stage. I thought it was quite fine that I could say to God, okay, I want to know exactly what you're doing. Because you see, a few years before that, when I was 10 years old, the same age as Griffin is right now, God gave me that psalm that Graham read. I had been encouraged to take a life verse. And as I was reading through scripture, uh, 
I was thinking about, well, should I really take a life verse? And I kept coming back to Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So I thought, oh, that's good. I can ask God what he's going to do. I don't need to fear anything. I don't need to be afraid of anything. I can ask God. Now, I'm 13. After all, you know, I'm 13. I should know all these things. And I was at camp, and I was at teen camp, which used to be held in the camp that's now Muskoka Woods. And I was up there, and we had a missionary speaker, and uh, I went to talk to him, and I said, you know, I want to know, is, is it really true? You know, I heard God talk to me when I was seven years old, but that's a while ago, you know, that's six years ago, that's a long time ago. Amazing how little time six years is now. But at that time, it was a long time ago. And I said, I, I need to know now exactly what God wants me to do. And if he, if he really is leading me to be a missionary. He said, where are you reading in scripture right now? I said, I'm reading through the book of Isaiah. He says, well, you just keep reading through Isaiah. God will talk to you one of these days. He'll confirm with you whether you are to be a missionary or not. So the next day, I see we've got some Kleenex here ready for me in case I sniffle, but it fell on the floor. Oh, dear. I do things like that, knock things on the floor. You don't do things like that, but I do. The next day, after I talked to that missionary, whom we call international workers now, i got to change my vocabulary. It's tough, you know, when you're ancient like I am, to change your vocabulary. The next day, I went up the path by myself to have my devotions and read scripture. And I read this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the, joy, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And those words just about jumped off the page at me that day. They were like they were written in psychedelic colors. And God said, is this what you need? I am affirming. I'm anointing you. Well, Satan came along and he said, you know, those words weren't written about you. They were written about Jesus. Who do you think you are to take those words and apply them to your life? And God said, yes, I wrote them about Jesus, but doesn't he live in you? Doesn't he live in you? I'm going to do that, but I need someone to carry me around to do it. And Satan says, you're being very, very, very egotistical here. And God said, no, 
you're not. I'm anointing you because I live in you and I want to use you as a channel of my blessing in this world. And I said, thank you, Lord. And I heard loud and clear that God had a plan for my life and it didn't matter. He would take me step by step. I didn't need to see the whole thing lined out. And it's probably a really good thing that I didn't <laughs> see it all then. I get very moved when I tell my story, so you have to forgive me if I sort of overflow. Because it's a story that's full of all kinds of blessings. God was very good to me with an education that I got pretty quickly. And he took us to Asia. And when I was very young, I heard about many things that happened in South America. And when I was just a kid, I heard about the five missionaries being killed by the Alca in Ecuador. And I used to say, God, take me anywhere but South America. I don't think I will really want to go there. I don't think I'm ready for that yet. So please, dear God, don't take me to South America. You know, God is really good to us. He took me to Asia first, then he took me to the upper Amazon. So he took me to Vietnam. Well, he took me to Malaysia for a year first. And then into Vietnam. And when I reached Vietnam, I felt like, oh, I have come home. What a strange thing to think, but I kind of felt like that. I've come home. And I came into a country that was at war, and yet I felt at home. I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. And we began studying Vietnamese, and God very graciously gave me that language very quickly. I was supposed to study for two years, but I studied for three months and finished the course. And it was a good thing because I got pregnant. And I had had some miscarriages already. And I was threatening to miscarry again, so the language director said, well, you don't need to come to class anymore. You've got the language, you can talk. She said, just go to bed. So I went to bed, which was fine and dandy. I was still borderline. I might not hang on to this child. Um, but I was staying in bed until all of a sudden we were under attack. In oh, most of you are, well, there's a few of you that are old enough to remember the big deal about the Tet 68 offensive in Vietnam. When the North Vietnamese came down and joined forces with Viet Cong who were in the country and they began attacks simultaneously on all of the cities throughout South Vietnam. And we were in Dalat, and nobody ever thought that they would ever attack Dalat because both sides used Dalat as a rest and recreation center. So we never thought the enemy would ever attack Dalat, but they did. They blew up a gas station in the center of the city, and they took 300 hostages in the town theater. That was most of the people had been, who had been working in the market right next door to the town theater. And 
the director of the language school came down and said, you've got to get out of your house because we were living on a house that was on the side of a valley and the North Vietnamese were coming down that valley. He said, you've got five minutes to get out of your house and come up to the school buildings. We're all going to be together there and we're trying to figure out where we're going to be if we end up under attack because we don't have any bunkers. So we had five minutes. What do you take with you when you've got five minutes? I'll tell you what you take with you. You take your passport, whatever money you have, you take a bar of soap and a tube of deodorant and your Bible, and that's it. That's what you take. You, you want to make sure you can stay clean, although you're not so sure you're going to have any water. But. And I had two loaves of bread rising in my kitchen. And I thought, well, I... I better take those loaves of bread with me too. So, because we, we might need to eat sometime and who knows. So I went up, we went up to the school buildings with what I just mentioned, these two loaves of bread rising. When I got up to the school, there were ovens up at the school building. So I baked my bread and we all gathered there. There were 34 of us, 25 adults, and nine children, preschoolers. And we gathered together, and that evening, we found some canned hamburgers somewhere around, and we opened them, and we sliced one loaf of bread into 34 pieces. The next day, um, the next, well, I'll tell you about that night first, before the next day. That night, we kind of scattered out around the school buildings, and it had been a um, boarding school previously, an Alliance boarding school, so there were beds around, and there were five of us who were in one building that had been the boys' dorm. And there were, everyone else was in what had been the girls' dorm that was attached to the dining room and attached to an auditorium. And on the end of that auditorium, there was a storeroom built into the side of a hill. So we decided if we came under attack, that's where we should go. We should go into that storeroom on the end of that building. So we... <clears throat> Ostensibly, we went to bed that night. We didn't really get undressed to go to bed because already we could hear a lot of gunfire around us. We could hear an awful lot of fighting going on around us. And just as we were trying to get settled, we heard the gunfire really close. And as we were kind of peeking out in the bottom of the windows, we saw all of the lights in our area that we had left on being shot out. And we knew that we were surrounded by enemy forces who really didn't want us there. And so we got under the bed and there were five of us, as I mentioned, in this one dorm area. And all five of us got under one bed because you, you, there's, you know, misery likes company. So, <laughs> And I don't ever remember being afraid, but it was a little precarious because the, with all of the uh, gunfire and there were some rockets involved and things like that, the plaster started to fall. 
So we realized we really couldn't stay there much longer. And that uh, dorm building was built on the side of a hill, so there was a downstairs and a door that came out down here, and we went down into the lower level and to that door, but we were trying to figure out how we could get across to the auditorium to get into that storeroom because as we were down there, it was like daylight. They were hurling howitzers, 105 howitzers, and howitzers burst in the air and scatter shrapnel all over, and they, they burst with a tremendous flame, and it's just like daylight. And they were coming, oh, just continually, more than one at a time. And we didn't know who was hurling these howitzers, but it was the South Vietnamese Army that were hurling the howitzers because they knew that the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were right there. So they were hurling them at them, never mind that we were there. They, they were hurling them at them. So all these howitzers are going bright as daylight. And we had quite a ways to go, like the length of a football field to go across. And we thought, well, if we run in that daylight and all that shrapnel, well, but we have to go. We can't stay here. So we decided, okay, we'll pray, and when we say amen, we run. So we prayed, and we said amen, and we ran. And as we were running across, there was a little bridge we had to cross over a creek. As we were running across, I began to feel blood running down my legs, and I nearly fell off the bridge because we were running in pitch dark. The howitzers had stopped, and we were in pitch dark. Another howitzer did not come over again until we were safely inside the building on the other side. God answered prayer and took us across there, but by that time, I was hemorrhaging and we went into the storeroom, and I, it was a storeroom that had lots of chairs, and it had a communion table. There really wasn't much room for anybody to lie down. And John said, you better lie down on the communion table. So that's where they put me, because I was bleeding. And I said, you better have somebody pray for me because this is no time and no place to have a miscarriage. So one of our colleagues who was standing at my head invited everyone to lay hands on me, and they did. And he prayed. And as he prayed, God gave us a daughter who has been an international worker in Cambodia now for over 25, 24 years just about 25 years. And what was really neat about that happening, I feel very privileged that God used me that night to tell us that he was there because I never had to tell my colleagues that God had touched me. While he was praying, the pain stopped, the bleeding stopped, everything stopped. And I knew God had given us a child. And... Bob Henry, who was the director of the language school, he said right after the prayer, God has something special for this child. He knew that God had touched me. Everybody knew. I didn't have to tell them. They knew 
because their hands were on me and they felt his presence there. And that night, the kids that were with us, one of those children was the screamiest kid you ever wanted to meet. She screamed night and day. She was about three years old and she was a very screamy kid. That night, she never whispered a scream. She was quiet. And as we were all crowded into that room, can't say we really slept, although if anybody dozed off, it was me. I was lying on the communion table after all. I had a place to lie down. The rest of them didn't. Not even the kids slept that night, but they were quiet. And we heard North Vietnamese voices looking for us. They tried the door of the auditorium, but of course we had locked the doors. They couldn't see us in there, of course, because we weren't in there, we were in the storeroom. They went through our buildings, they couldn't find us, and they went and put a, a, set up a camp very close to the end of our drive and decided it was time to sleep when morning came. When morning came, we knew we had to get out of that storeroom because the oxygen was just about gone in there. We were all getting a little bit loopy because we didn't quite have enough oxygen. So we crept out of there and up and into the dining room area. And I was in a bit of a mess, but that was okay. It was all kind of dry and tacky and no more problems. And we crept into the dining room and we talked to the Americans who had a signal corps base four kilometers away from us. But it was just a signal corps base. It wasn't a fighting base. And we told them what our position was. And then some of the tribal people who had been who worked for us and had been hiding during the night, some of them in trees, came and they told us what had happened, that they went through all our buildings and everything. He said, they're really looking for you guys. They're really looking for you. And you shouldn't stay here. And they also told us, and don't ask me how, the grapevine among the tribal people really works well. They also told us, do you know that some of your colleagues in Bamituit were killed last night? And five of our colleagues were killed in Bamituit that night. Two of them, and one couple, had just moved to Bamituit from Delot. And you know, for a while I said to God, why did you take them and not us? But God still had something for us to do. And as long as we were in Vietnam, I knew I was immortal until I had done what God had for me to do. And that totally erases fear. You don't have to worry. God has his hand on us. So uh, that was about 7 o'clock in the morning. We talked to the Americans. They said, oh, we're having a meeting at 10 o'clock, and then we'll let you know if we're going to do anything. Oh, okay. And I remember us being in that dining room, and that morning I sliced another loaf of bread into 24 pieces, so we all had a piece of bread. That was all we had. And... At one o'clock, they phoned and said, we're coming for you. We can't come in helicopters because they'll shoot us down. We're coming in armored vehicles. We'll come there about half past one for you. And they 
So we thought, okay, they're coming. And be ready just to come right out. We'll come in, and then you come out and get into the vehicles. Okay. Um, we think we do need to remove you. We've got some other intelligence. They, they want to set up shop where you are, so we need to get you out of there. So they were, we were waiting for them to come, and just before they came, just before they arrived, there was a helicopter gunship raid right over top of us. And we didn't know what was happening. It was a good thing we were, weren't outside. Those buildings were all pockmarked with bullets from that helicopter gunship raid. And in that helicopter gunship raid, a certain suicide squad was killed. A North Vietnamese suicide squad that had all of our pictures and our names, and we were their target. We did not find that out until about eight months later when the American military finally revealed that to us. But that helicopter gunship raid was not coordinated with the Americans. That was also a South Vietnamese helicopter gunship raid. It just happened to be right then. And it barely left and the Americans arrived and the commander of the base came in to us. We couldn't recognize him. Talk about being armed to the teeth. I had never seen anybody with quite that much armor on in modern day. We couldn't see his face and, and all the guys that came for us were armed to the teeth. And we didn't know who they were, but they came, he came in and he said, just wait a minute. He said, My, the men are gonna fan out around the trucks and then you're to go in and lie down on the floor of the trucks. And then we will leave. So we did that, we went out, lay, lay down on the trucks and the guys all got back in and we drove off. No fires, no gunshots, nothing. But we got to the base and these guys started taking their armor off and we realized, and the, the commander had said, this is a volunteer crew that came for you. And we realized it was the doctor and the dentist and the PX guy. These were not fighting soldiers that came for us, but they were our friends. We had played volleyball with them, we'd eaten with them, and they were our friends and they came for us. And they started talking, they said, boy, that place is crawling with enemy. But something funny happened while we were there. The commander said, don't fire your gun unless you're fired at. And one guy said, there was a guy standing in front of me. He said, I could have reached out and touched him. He was looking right at me, but he didn't see me. I know he didn't see me. It was like I was invisible. And he had a gun pointed right at me, and he didn't move. And he didn't see me. And the others started saying, oh, yeah, that, that there were people looking at me too, with guns pointed at us. But they obviously didn't see us. You were supposed to be kept alive today. And we didn't have to fight for it. Somebody else did the fighting for you. We said, oh yes, 
the heavenly hosts did the fighting for us. We didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. They said, it's amazing how God looked after you today. And then we had supper with them. Well, they were a little short on food. They had canned hamburgers, instant mashed potatoes, and milk galore, but not much water. So that's what we had. You know, canned hamburgers and instant mashed potatoes taste really good when you haven't really eaten for a couple of days. Taste wonderful. So we ate that, and then they set up cots in their conference room, and we spent the night there. But they said, you need to hang on to your milk cartons because we don't have very many facilities here. So you're going to have to use milk cartons, empty milk cartons, as your facilities in the night. So each cot had a milk carton at the end of it. And we got to know each other rather well that night. <laughs> Those people are my brothers and sisters <laughs> in ways that not many brothers and sisters know one another. <laughs> the next morning we were trying to figure out, they were trying to figure out how they could get rid of us off this signal core base because 34 extra bodies on a signal core base is far too many bodies there. And they were saying, well, we don't have... We have one helicopter available to us, so we're going to have to ferry you out. So who goes first? Well, they thought, you better get rid of the pregnant ladies first. And maybe, maybe you should let their husbands go with them. And one, one lady who was pregnant, more pregnant than I was, I was just coming up on three months, but she was eight and a half months pregnant. And they said, she better go. And she had three three preschoolers too. So they, I said, yeah, yeah, they go first, not, not me. Let them go first. So we're trying to decide this. And a Chinook lands. Do you know what a Chinook helicopter is? It's the biggest helicopter there is. And there's lots of room in it for 34 people. A Chinook landed empty to refuel. And they said, oh, we were supposed to go to Balmy Tuat, but we can't get there because of fire. Uh, the firing and the mortaring and the rocketing that's going on, and we're running out of fuel, so we need to land here. And the commander said, good. You know, you were brought here for a reason, because we have 34 people we need to get rid of on this base, so you're going to take them to Cameron Bay. And he commandeered that Chinook, and we didn't have to split up after all. And they took us to Cameron Bay. In Cameron Bay, we stayed there for two weeks during the offensives throughout this, the land. And I must say, our friends to the south of us looked after us very well. And we had Quonset huts to live in, and we, they sent buses, and they brought ice cream to us, and they brought movies for the kids, and they took us swimming, and you name it. Cameron Bay at that time was like a huge American city, 25 miles long, on the coast of Vietnam, and some of the most beautiful beaches in the whole country. So we had a nice holiday. Um, and they intercepted some care packages um, to, and brought them to us. So we had a change of clothing, and we had some toys for the kids. And it was amazing what they did. They took us into the PX and said, take whatever you want, toothbrush, 
toothpaste, soap, uh, anything we have here, you can just help yourself. It's on us. The day we arrived, we arrived in the, heli in the Chinook, and the commander got on the helicopter and he said to the pilot, who are these people? And he said, these are the missionaries from Dalat. No, the commander said, no, they're not, because there were 32 missionaries killed in Dalat yesterday. And the pilot said, but sir, I have 34 people here. He said, but I got a message. 34, 32 missionaries were killed, adults and children, in Dalat yesterday. So the pilot said to us, is, hey, you got anybody with you that usually isn't with you? Yes, we, sat, we, said, we had a couple that were vacationing in Dalat with us. So there were 34 of us instead of 32. And he said, sir, these are the missionaries from Dalat and the Dalat area. So the commander said, oh, okay, well, you better come and have something to eat. Whereupon he took us into the officer's mess. It was very suiting. That was the suit. Anyway, it was, it was right that it was a mess because we were all a mess. That was for sure. It felt like a big mess walking into that officer's mess for dinner. And then he, he said, he went to his radio people. He said, where did you find out the 32 people were killed in Dalat yesterday? They said, we got the message from Tokyo. He said, find out where Tokyo got it. Well, Tokyo got it from Hanoi. He said, find out if Tokyo broadcast it to North America. So they went back, and yeah, Tokyo had broadcast it. So he came back to us. He said, at 5 o'clock tonight, you can have priority on our radio phones to phone your next of kin and tell them you're alive. At 5 o'clock that night, I phoned my parents, a radio station in Hawaii picked up the radio waves and phoned from there. And they asked us, are you willing, to, will your people be willing to pay, pay collect co uh, charges? And I said, oh yeah, that's fine. You can call collect. As it turned out, the radio station in Hawaii paid for all the phone calls that night. When I talked to my mom and dad that night, it was 5 o'clock in the morning, their time, and I knew that they had not slept. The mother said, we knew you were still alive, but we were afraid you were captured. We didn't know. And my father had found out that one of the radio stations in town had tapped their phone line to find out if they were going to get in any information about us. My father was very angry about that. So it was on the news almost immediately that we phoned that we were alive. That's how my dad found out. Something's going on funny with our phone line, if they know that right away. And our pictures were on the, had been in the paper the day before, on the front page of the Ottawa Citizen and the Ottawa Journal, dead or missing. But God had other plans. And throughout our time in Vietnam, we continually saw that God had other plans. Many years later, when we were living in Pleiku, and by the way, I was evacuated four times. 
every time with clothes on my back, the last time in 75 when South Vietnam fell. But at one point that re really assured me that God still had something for me to do. He still had people to whom I was to bring the good news of the gospel. He still had people that were waiting to hear. And he wanted to use me as a channel. I was hitchhiking on a helicopter. I had to go to Bamituit from Pleiku. At this time, we were living in Pleiku. Our house was five miles, about five miles from where the main part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail from North Vietnam came into South Vietnam. A little strategic area, to say the least. And there was lots always going on in Pleiku. But I was hitchhiking on a helicopter. That, and we used to do that. We'd go out to the helicopter pad and say, where are you going? And they'd tell us, got room for me? So, you know, he'd get on the helicopter. And this day, Alana was three years old, and she was with me. And they said, we're going to bomb me to it. I said, good, so am I. Can I go? Yeah, get in. So I got in the helicopter with Alana, and we took off from Pulekhu going uh, east. No, going west, sorry. We were going west from Pleiku. And we flew over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and I, I said, Lord, why did you get, let me get on a reconnaissance flight? And we kept flying, and I knew we were over Cambodia. And we were flying treetop level. We had flown over anti-aircraft fire. Fortunately, nobody was there, but they were all there. I could see all the anti-aircraft weapons and this Ho Chi Minh Trail. I knew where I was. And then all of a sudden, I realized that these two guys, the pilot and the co-pilot, had a map out. And they were looking through the map and saying to one another, I didn't have a helmet on, so they couldn't hear me talk. But eventually, one of them threw me a helmet, put on a helmet, and the guy said, do you know where we are? I said, yes, I do. You're over Cambodia. Oh, we're not supposed to be over Cambodia. We've never flown in this area before. What do we do? How do we get to Bami it? Can you take us to Bami it? I said, yes, I can take you to Bami it. I said, for one thing, you need to turn around. He said, do you have a cold? I said, no. You can go as high as you like. Well, he said, I think we better go a little higher now. He said, that, that big six-lane red dirt road we passed there, what, kind, what was that? I said, that's the main part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Oh, dear. He says, oh, we're not supposed to be over that. Uh, he says, we're just supposed to go right to Bami to it. I said, well, why did you go west then? You should have gone south. Oh. Oh, yeah, he said, I guess we read the instruments wrong. He said, we haven't flown much. <laughs> I said, okay, turn around and we'll go back and I'll tell you when to start going south. So we turned around, went back. I recognized some villages and I said, okay, now 
turn south. And you see that road there? You follow that road right into Balmituit. Okay, we get into Balmituit. He said, do you know where the helicopter pad is? We don't know where it is here. So eventually we got to Balmituit. We landed on fumes, I think, because they were definitely out of fuel. And we landed in the commander's face is standing there like that. He says, where have you guys been? You're supposed to be here an hour ago. Well, sir, we took a little detour. He said, and where did you detour to? You detour because of this woman? He said, no, sir, we're here because of this woman. It's a good thing we picked up a missionary because God's looking after her or we wouldn't be here at all. And after that, that uh, a few minutes later, after the commander sort of settled down, the pilot came to me and he said, do you really believe that God looked after us today? I said, oh yes, I really believe God looked after us today. And he had something for me to do and bought me to it. He might not have had anything for you to do, but he had something for me to do. He said, how would I ever know if God had something for me to do? How do I know God? And I had the privilege of leading that young man to Christ that day because he had seen God at work. And he had understood. He had those kinds of eyes that were looking to see if God was really at work in this world. Let me assure you, my dear friends, that God is at work in this world. And he is calling men and women and boys and girls. He's especially calling boys and girls. He's calling them to walk with him. Our daughter, when she was in going to Bible school, she felt God should, was telling her she should go to Bible school but she said, I kept saying to God, I can't do what mom and dad do. I can't do that, God. I'll go to Bible school, and maybe you'll have something else for me, but I can't do that. And then one day when she was sitting in chapel, she heard God say, Ilana, do you really think that it's you that's going to do that work? And suddenly, Atlanta said, it dawned on me, oh, I don't have to do the work that mom and dad are doing. They're not doing it. It's God that's doing that work. So all I have to do is say, okay, I'll be available to be your partner in this ministry. I'll be part of it. And she found a way to phone us after that chapel service. And she said, guess what? God's calling me to be a missionary. My granddaughter, my younger granddaughter, had a terrible time when she came back to Canada with culture shock. Came back for university, and she missed Cambodia. She'd been brought up in Cambodia, born in Thailand, as Alana was, because we got evacuated to Thailand before her birth. And uh, she had a really rough year. 
At the end of the rough year, though, she said to me, you know, Grandma, that rough year was worthwhile. I said, why is that? She says, now I know what God wants me to do. He wants me to be a missionary. But I didn't know that before. She said, and I was probably heading in the wrong direction. No wonder I had a bad year. She said, but God used that bad year. And you know, sometimes God knocks us to our knees. When he does, look up and pray. He's got something for you. And he wants to show you his power. He wants to show you his grace. And he wants to give you a glimpse of this world through his eyes. There's so many stories I could tell you of how God gave me a glimpse of this world through his eyes. But maybe that's because one of my prayers has been, let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. And there's a song. I was going to play, but I think I'll just sing it for you. Never mind playing it. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. A world of men that don't want you, Lord, but a world for which you prayer.